this episode of Physically Spiritual, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Kevin Vost. We're discussing his upcoming book, You Are That Temple, diet, fasting, exercise, learning about health, and the life of virtue. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I have been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how that relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Vost. Well, thanks so much for having me with you, Andrew. So as we get started, um, reading this book, uh, You Are That Temple, which is coming out in November from Sophia Institute Press. So I'm going to have a link in the description. If you're interested in the text, go check it out, pre-order it. That really helps uh, with the, the publication if you can pre-order it. So go and do that. But as I read the book, I was just struck by how much of the book probably drew together different themes of your life. You know, in your story, you had you had like powerlifting and exercise, but then you also have a doctorate in psychology, um, and then you also have dug so deeply into the Catholic faith. Um, yeah, so I was just wondering if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and how the kind of journey that God has brought you through has brought you to this book. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, because so many, in many ways the themes of this book do intertwine kind of with the with the way my life has been lived out for 61 years now. Uh, but yeah, I, I just briefly, I was born in 1961. I was uh, raised Catholic along with a brother and sister. We went to Mass every Sunday, um, went to a fine Catholic school, taught by Dominican sisters mostly and some good lay people and a Catholic high school, a Viatorian priests and brothers and, and uh, good lay teachers there too. Um, though I said like we went to Mass every Sunday, went to the Catholic schools. We didn't really talk about uh, Jesus or religion at home. Just wasn't really a topic of conversation. Uh, we didn't even have a Bible at home because I remember once in high school I had to do a uh, taking a religion course. I had to write a paper that pulled from the Bible so we had to go down to the local Catholic bookstore and pick one, pick one up. But anyway, you know, uh, I, I, I grew up, you know, within the faith. Then my, my interest from early on, I always loved weightlifting. When I was really little, my goal in life was to become Superman. And I went around dressed as Superman most of the time. And, and uh, my, my mom's friends used to call her Superman's mom. When I got old enough to realize I couldn't be Superman, I, I saw a weightlifter on TV. I think it was when I was in second grade, 1968. Maybe it was the Olympics that year. But at that point, I knew, okay, I can't be Superman, but I want to be a weightlifter. I want to be strong like that, those guys. So I had my dad buy me weights, and then I played with him for a few years. But by the seventh grade in the early 70s, I started training regularly at home and then at the YMCA and various gyms. So, so that thing became a big part of my life. Uh, as I went through school, I also worked as a weightlifting instructor at a YMCA and then later at a couple different uh, gyms. But it all kind of dovetails in my late teens when I went to a seminar by this bodybuilder named Mike Menser. Uh, he was at the time thought to be the, the next guy after Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was going to take over the reins. It didn't quite work out that way, but but he had been the first guy to win uh, the Mr. Universe with a perfect score back in 1978. So a buddy of mine and I drove down to St. Louis and, and saw one of his seminars. And he, he gave us a lot of really eye-opening lessons because we were just living and breathing bodybuilding at that time. And, and at one point he said, do you guys want to know the secret to becoming a world-class bodybuilder? So we're all Yes, that's why we're here. You know, do we drink motor oil? Do we work out for eight hours a day? Is, is that enough? You know, <laughs> but, but then he says, no, the secret to be a world-class bodybuilder is you have to choose the right parents. So, so he instructed us about the power of genetics. So even though he was a man who worked extremely hard, who dieted very carefully, he was recognizing that if my mom and dad hadn't, if I hadn't been born in such a way that my shoulder girdle was very wide, that my hips were very narrow, that my muscle bellies were very full. You know, I can never be Mr. Universe. So I kind of open up our eyes that we can all grow in our potentials, but we don't all have to, the potential to be number one in, in a particular sport. You know, that's something that can be outside of our control. So anyway, uh, he was a really brilliant man. I learned a lot about different exercise methods from him, but he also dabbled in philosophy. And even in the muscle magazines where I read his articles, he was quoting people like uh, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, Bertrand Russell, British philosopher, and some other people like that. So, so through that reading, it led me to question my faith. It led me to think that belief in God is either just uh, unnecessary, like just open your eyes to the universe, that's the starting point, you don't have to ask where that came from, or it was self-contradictory, things like that. So 
by that kind of reading of those philosophers in my late teens, it made me think that belief in God was unreasonable, even though I wished I could. thought, no, I, I honestly can't. But, but about 25 years later, through a series of events, I read St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. And then I realized that all these arguments that drew me away from the faith, they had been answered more than 700 years ago. And Thomas is borrowing from theologians and philosophers who lived a long time before him. So anyway, at the age of 43, that's what, 18 years ago now, I'm able to come back to the faith. Now, during the years I'm gone, you know, I go to work in this disability evaluation program. I'm able to get a doctorate in clinical psychology. You know, I get married, have two, two young boys. So a lot of things happen in between. But when I discovered Thomas too, he kind of helped pull all that together. My specialty in psychology was memory. And Thomas is actually one of the key figures in these memory techniques. I always love fitness. And Thomas talks about the integration of mind and body and how health and fitness to the body are like virtues to the soul. So, so anyway, it's been about 18 years now. I've been back in their church trying to learn these lessons of St. Thomas Aquinas and other great saints, the wisdom of the church and, and scripture. And for me, one of the most important themes is that the value of both mind and body that, that God created us is, is integrations of both. And that even someday, you know, after the second coming of Christ, we're going to have a glorified bodies if, if we make it to heaven uh, for eternity. As you, as you talk about your story, that strand, you know, the Dominican sisters were there in your grade school. Mm -hmm. And then St. Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican scholar, was there in your conversion. Um, so it just, it just makes me wonder, like, what was the Lord planning in your heart at a young age that would then, like, resonate, you know, later on when he, like, rescued you um, through the teachings of, of the Universal Doctor? Um, and... And the beauty of that providence, um, I could relate to so much of that. I I became an agnostic when I was very young in junior high, and um, and the Lord started my rescue mission at confirmation um, when I was young too. But then as I got older into sports, we're in Northwest Ohio, so as I started weightlifting, we would go down to the Arnold Classic, which is like the huge weightlifting expo oh, yes. down in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. You know, so I remember going to these. Um, these expos and just seeing these massive men, often surprised at how tall they were, because <laughs> the magazines always made them look like giants, but a lot of times they weren't. Well, bodybuilders, yeah, they're often, yeah, in my height, five nine, yeah. I'm, I'm taller than a good number of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that, so that was kind of surprising, but I remember just like, along with it came this like, one, this, like all of these supplements and stuff were like, it was almost like get big at any cost, like, yes. we're not sure if this is going to hurt you or not, yes. uh, but if you take it, it'll make you big. But then there was also this, like, intense promiscuity in the culture, too, of just, like, the way people dressed and, and kind of the, the way that the body was was presented in that context. Um, so coming out of that, then, into college and going deeper in my conversion, there's definitely been a process of, like, the Lord almost, like, shedding some of those things of, like, the goal is health, not a, a physique or a certain level of strength. You know, a, a, almost like a, a recovery process of how I see myself, my body image, my relationship to my own body. Um, and I guess I was, I was curious from your own life and your own conversion, how that, that journey's been kind of not just to believe in God, but also kind of out of that culture that went along with it. Well, that's exactly right. And it is amazing, the parallels. I was there in Columbus too. <laughs> Back in 79, I think it was, in 81, when it was purely bodybuilding alone. When Frank Zane yeah. won, and then when Franco Colombo won, I, I was there with some buddies. Uh, but, but, but yeah, so at that point, from the late 70s to the early 80s, when I was still going through school and things, but I was working at a gym, working mm -hmm. out like crazy on a powerlifting team, it was like all-consuming. And all we really thought about was, how can I get stronger? How can I get more muscular? You know, very, very much all-consuming. And unfortunately for many young people too, that can lead into the temptation of steroids and other things that are contrary to health. Uh, so, so with so many things, you know, I mean, like even Aristotle talks about virtue as a moderation, you know, there's so much truth to yeah. that. Like bodybuilding itself, uh, in earlier decades, like before the steroid era, those, those Mr. Americas and the competitors tended to live a long time and be very, very healthy. Then I know they've even done comparative studies and as decades went by and it became bigger and bigger, bigger is better. All these crazy supplements, all the steroids and growth hormones, the lifespan. I mean, even now, 
I'm constantly seeing stories pop up of top flight bodybuilding men and even women now dying at a very young ages, even 30s and 40s. Yeah, we can so just overshoot overshoot that when we lose track. Uh, so I think that's one thing that, I, that did happen to me over the years. I went from that uh, obsession just with the body, with how you look, with how strong you are, to realize there's, there's far more to life than that. You know, and as you get older, like as I have children, okay, that that... Okay, now health really is important. I want to be there for them. So in a way, you know, kind of the natural progression, if we're keeping our eyes open, uh, is we're going to gain in wisdom over the years. And then hopefully maybe we can help impart that to some young people to, to make them a little less likely to follow the same path, at least if they've heard of somebody who's been there, done that, and, and knows the, the, the pitfalls. But yeah, I will say though, yeah, the, the, the fitness culture, you know, is a two-edged sword. It can be so wonderful. But if people who get overabsorbed, it, it can be just so detrimental. It can t lead from a quest to, for, for health and fitness to the exact opposite. It can destroy one's body. Yeah. One of the reasons I love this book is it, 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 I thought of the, the idea from the early church of kind of like the seeds of the logos, this idea that, that God's truth was present in creation and then also present in the wisdom of the ancient world. And the early church like captured this wisdom and used it for the gospel and for building the kingdom. And, and as I was reading um, You Were That Temple, I, it just struck me in so many ways you were kind of doing that. Like you were pulling this wisdom out from science, but then using it for um, the building of the kingdom. Uh, and, and, and that really resonated with me. Um, this podcast really has kind of come from my own health journey. So if you would have saw me 10 years ago, I was almost 400 pounds. Um, and, and a big part of this was after I lost all the weight, but then also worked on my mental health and, and you know, just kind of went all in with it, like how that transformed my spiritual life too. Uh, but one of the things as I, as I got into um, learning to be healthy was just like the massive amount of health information out there. You know, it's like... Um, Everyone's got a podcast, everyone's got books, and oftentimes they're saying completely opposite things, oh, like yeah. eat only meat, don't eat any meat at all, <laughs> you know? Um, and the one thing over time that I've come to really value and the people I learn from is if, if they avoid um, making their science into a religion, <laughs> and, and part of that is the willingness to change their ideas, like admit when they're wrong, because science is always provisional, so, so it's always developing, and... Um, and one of the things I appreciated in this book early on, you recognize that you have written health and fitness books before, Fit for Eternal Life and Tending the Temple. Um, and you acknowledged early on in the book that you know, some of your ideas about diet have changed and that some of your understanding of exercise has developed. Um, and I really appreciated that, one, that candid honesty, but two, also, I think that idea that you're, you know, you're seeking the truth. You're not um, following an ideology with this stuff. Um, so could you talk about that like shift in your thinking that happened prior to this book? Sure, sure. And again, you know, I'm 61 now. I've been lifting weights for a long, long time and, and trying mm. to eat, eat healthy. And like even in Fit for Eternal Life, uh, it, it's exercise heavy and there's a couple chapters on, on diet and nutrition. This new mm. book is kind of the opposite. It's kind of nutrition heavy, but there's some on physical training. But, but my exercise ideas have, have just gradually kind of increased where I'm probably more inclusive now recognizing there's multiple different approaches a person might try and enjoy. But the biggest changes did come in nutrition. Um, and it basically boiled down to some uh, dietary advice that I had considered as, as fad diets, uh, primarily what's now called the low carb and the keto diet. Uh, as I learned more and more and more, uh, I realized where I, was, where I was probably mistaken because I didn't have enough knowledge of these other opinions that, that weren't exactly mainstream. But, but a, couple, a couple of ways to point this out. I wrote in Fit for Eternal Life that uh, before I did a bodybuilding contest in my late teens, I went on a very, very low carbohydrate diet and lost a lot of fat. But I binged so heavily when I was done that I regained 20 pounds in one week when I was like 18 or 19 years old. And, and that actually happened, you know. But, but as I look back on it now, I realized I wasn't just doing a low carbohydrate diet. I was living mostly on tab diet soda, uh, salads, uh, chicken, or tuna, tuna, you know, and not much else. So I wasn't doing just a mm. low carbohydrate diet. I was also doing a low fat diet and maybe yeah. even a low protein diet. 
And this is known as a semi-starvation diet. In research since the 1930s has shown you, you get young teenage men, college age men, and you give them below the calories they need for an extended period of time, it's gonna make them ravenous when they're able to eat again. So that, yeah. that's kind of what happened to me. So it wasn't just the fact that I lowered the carbohydrates because I think as I'm sitting here now, uh, I've had low carbohydrate in, intake, probably under 50 or 60 grams a day for like over 550 days. And my body mm -hmm. weight dropped 30 pounds and has, has stayed consistent. You know? yeah. And I'm not hungry. So that's one, one thing I realized there. And some of those general principles about, yeah, how do we know? We're told so many conflicting things. And I agree, oh my gosh. One example, just this morning I looked this up because I've been reading some different opinions. It was just on uh, the effects of caffeine because I'm a coffee drinker. Caffeine on blood sugar and insulin levels. So I just typed in the search bar, you know, caffeine, its effects on insulin. And like the first article that comes up says, caffeine can uh, uh, reduce insulin sensitivity. So in other words, watch out, you know, it can be, it can be bad for your blood sugar control and so forth. And then a little later, there was a headline in bold that was exact opposite. You know, so you get both. And then I came across a, a meta-analysis from 2021 where they reviewed a whole slew of studies. And the, this particular meta-analysis opinion was, yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't really seem to have a positive or a negative impact on your, uh, your insulin levels. Uh, so you think, well, what am I going to do with all this? You know, I get all these conflicting opinions. So I say one thing there is nutrition is a very inexact science. You know, we're, we're always trying to piece together what we know on, on limited information. But you can also then say, okay... Well, it's conflicting information, but what about me? Well, was I drinking coffee when I lost 30 pounds and dropped my blood pressure 30 points and drew, drew my waist in six inches? Yeah, actually I was. So I know at least for this time of my life, coffee has no apparent Ill, Ill effects for me. Now, maybe later on down the road, if I go to the doctor, hey, your lipids are all off, then I might want to reconsider. Maybe maybe I'll try reducing the caffeine, see if it does anything. But anyway, so I say it's, we have to be careful to get broad opinions, and then we also have to see how it uh, plays out in our own lives. But one last point, then I'll be quiet and let you respond. But, but another thing that, that really struck me was that I realized I always tried to follow like the mainstream dietary advice, which from the 70s and 80s was like the food pyramid, things like that, the standard nutritional guidelines. And I became highly aware that since those guidelines became almost universal in the United States and developing countries, that is virtually precisely when our, our uh, obesity, diabetes, non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, and these things just skyrocketed at epidemic levels. When we were advised to move away from more traditional, uh, more balanced diets that weren't purposely heavily based on starches and sugars. Yeah, yeah. I, when I was in my early 20s, I went on a kind of starvation diet like that. You know, I, I, I was always a little heavy and at the time I was gaining weight as I was starting my career. And I tried this thing called the HCG diet, which was based on some probably bad science and is essentially eating like 500 calories a day. Ooh. And after doing that, I had my fourth knee surgery. I had a, a bunch of ACLs and meniscus stuff. And, um, and that next year I gained 100 pounds after wow. doing that. You know, but then in, in my weight loss journey, I started off doing like, you know, like Weight Watchers kind of tracking things, just trying to moderate. And I lost some weight. Um, but then when I went low carb, it was actually my doctor. He sat me down on my annual checkup and said, I've been doing some research. He wrote down on his prescription pad, like eat this, don't eat that. Like basically mm -hmm. laying out mm -hmm. a ketogenic style diet that really kind of focused more on food quality mm -hmm. than just on, um, you know, like what's in my blood. That next year I lost a hundred pounds. And I've kept it off. And I, and I did that. I did a very strict low carb diet for three years following up from that. Um, you know, I was, and that through that time I did t do a lot of testing and I never had less than like 0.5 millimolar of BHB in my blood. Um, so like I knew I was constantly making ketones and living on those ketones, um, which is the, the energy substrate the body makes when you're eating fat. Um, and then I've, I've shifted some now to kind of focus more on whole foods and that kind of restrictive diet really um, also kind of affected everything else, you know, like parties and, and socializing. And with my job, I'm out um, with meetings that have meals and stuff. So I've, I've loosened up my diet a little bit, even though my base diet is still a very low carb diet. Um, but all that's to, to say, I, 
I really resonated with your story of switching um, to that low carb style of eating and just experiencing that weight loss, but not just losing weight, but really almost effortlessly keeping it off. Like, like I could never imagine, I, I was lighter than I was in seventh grade when I got done losing weight on low carb diet. And then, and then I have basically without any kind of restriction or, um, or, or denying myself have basically maintained it for almost five years now. Um, you know, so, so I, I'm, I'm a kind of a living example of exactly what you're talking about in this book. Yeah, and, isn't um, it amazing? I remember, you know, like back in the teens, but before I go to that bodybuilder seminar, right? I'm still at the phase yeah. where I think, hey, I'm going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm going to be the most muscular man in the world, you know, where I didn't realize the genetic limitations. So at that time, uh, you know, I probably wasn't eating the right foods, but what the muscle magazines said I should be eating, I did that without flaw. I remember I worked yeah. at, a, at a Burger King for several years, never had a single hamburger bun, never had a single soda, never touched a French fry. And, and, you know, so my, my will was just like ironclad, no exceptions. And then I kind of realized, wait a minute, you know, this isn't really, you know, this isn't, uh, I'm never going to be Mr. Universe, you know, even if I do this. Hmm. And then I went through years and years where I always kept lifting and tried to eat reasonably well. But I would think back, man, whatever happened to that willpower I had when I was a teen, you know? So, so I go and until age 60, I start eating this way. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's back. But it's not like, oh, I'm exercising my will now. It's just... I'm eating the right kind of food, so and I'm, it's satisfying me. I'm happy. I don't think about food all the time. When I'm ready to eat a meal, I, yeah. I enjoy every single meal. But but yeah, eating the high satiety foods, you know, having the adequate protein and micronutrients and having adequate fat, just like magically. I mean, if I had tendencies toward gluttony, and I did. I mean, in the evenings, I would like alternate between sweet and salty snacks as the night went on until I fell asleep yeah. in my chair. You know, none of that anymore, and it was almost effortless just by eating. The whole nutritious foods that, that then satisfied me. Yeah, I you know, yeah, definitely as, can relate to that. As thinking of that idea of virtue um, along with this, I know one of the, the things that I think the Lord has been like exercising from my mind is this enlightenment view of the human person. And part of that is like your mind is separate from your body. Mm-hmm. And what freedom or will is, is just like the imposition of power from your soul on your body. So it's like, like your your brain's a supercomputer, and what it means to choose something is, is it's sort of this forceful process, where like the I think the classical notion of the body soul relationship is one of, of, of the body and soul are really one thing, that that are are deeply connected, and 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 in that then freedom isn't just the sort of power exerted on the body from the spirit. But it's an expression of of harmony between the body, soul, and the environment. Um, so one of the the realizations I had in this was, uh, I hadn't really like gotten stronger. You know, like my my willpower wasn't instantaneously made more robust by eating low carb, but but I, I felt like I was eating in a way that was more in accordance with my human nature, with God's design for me, and how that's expressed in. In, in nature. And, and so as a result of that, now I experienced this harmony and I, and I created an environment in, in which my body could flourish, right? So, so this experience of virtue uh, wasn't like this growth in power. It was uh, an experience of, of being at harmony with God's design in my life. Oh, I really like that. And what, you know, the, what that makes me think of is in terms of, yeah, in terms of this willpower and, and, and virtue and like the, the, the mind that over, you know, telling the body what it's going to do and imposing our will yeah. that way. Yeah, it is it is harmonious. So like for me, like when I said, you know, I wish I had that willpower I had when I was a teen. Well, it's not you know, really a willpower. It's not like now when I see a tempting dessert, I can say, get thee behind me. You know, I have nothing to do with yeah. you. It's not like mm, I'm going to overcome these temptations. Eating, treating, feeding the body properly, the temptations themselves aren't there. It's no longer a source of temptation mm. because your body yeah. is properly nourished, you know. And, and a key point there I, I make too is even more than even more than just the, the ketogenic approach because different people can handle, you know, different levels of, of carbohydrate. But that idea of as much mm-hmm. as possible kind of eating the real wholesome foods as God made them, yeah. you know, trying to focus mostly at least 
on foods that come from, they say, like a farm, a farm, a field, or a forest instead of a factory, hmm. or foods that don't yeah. have a, a table of, of a list of ingredients, you know, or a barcode. So just eating those foods as, as they, you know, grow in nature can satisfy us. And, you know, they really did do that for, for who knows how many centuries before recent times when we started kind of over-processing and kind of improving on foods as God had originally made them. Yeah, and, and, and I think these natural foods, even though nature is kind of a, a hairy word to use uh, in theological and philosophical conversations, but these, these natural foods are foods as God designed them. They're foods that our body understands, right? And, and I think this is one of the issue with many processed foods is, it, is, is there's a, a conflicting experience between the signal and the reality or like what the senses experience, but then what's actually physiologically happening. Right, so so these foods are engineered to create a certain experience in the brain, but then the experience the body has is somehow contradictory. So that maybe there's an artificial flavor that's put in there, or they they adjust the sweetness and saltiness to hit a specific mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. experience in the brain that triggers yes. a biological reaction in you. And that reaction is basically saying like, this is something really good. You need this. This will help you survive. But then on the other hand, what the body is getting is something that's actually damaging it and not nurturing it, right? So it creates this cycle of, um, of basically presenting your, your, your brain with something that you can't live without, but then what it's presenting to your body is the reality is that you can't survive with it either. Yeah, I think that, you know, precisely what we're seeing, you know, in a variety of ways, yeah, the foods are engineered to have this, uh, they call it, you know, bliss factor and just different mm. sweet spots that come from either salt or sugar or fat content, a mouth feel that comes from the, and they're all, they're engineered yeah. this way. So yeah, so they can become just unusually enticing. Uh, like, like in my own previous pattern, I alternate between sweet and salty snacks. I'd eat sweet things that the body just, we could have an almost unlimited capacity to eat sweets, but at a certain point you're like, oh, that's too much. I need some salt to tone that down. Then once you've had your salty snacks, I kind of need a sweet dessert now and we get in this cycle because neither neither one of these snacks is actually giving us nutrition the ner the the nutrients that our body may be seeking so so there's different ways of looking at this one there's something called the protein leverage uh theory that looks at two if we eat food like processed foods that are too deficient in protein then we're likely to eat more of other foods to, to bring us up to that level so we're taking in more food uh energy that we need and when the processed foods, when they are altered, they're typically adding things like sugar, salt, and fat. It's typically not protein enhancing them because then you might be less likely to eat more of it. So it's carefully engineered to try to keep us, you know, consuming as many food products as possible where a much simpler diet of, you know, real meats and fruits and vegetables and, and dairy, we're probably going to be satisfied with a lot less food consumption. I know that's how it's worked for me. and and probably yourself and many others. Yeah. yeah, I think natural food speaks a language our body understands. Um, what What is it specifically about protein? Like what does the body do with protein that makes it so satiating, that makes it so necessary? I know yeah, I've seen well, studies you know, that like people will basically keep eating until they get enough of it. Like the body won't live without enough. Yeah, and there, there's uh, some interesting research. Some of this recent research, like starting with, with locusts, and they, they measure how much protein they would need and they like, like feed them flies or something that were engineered to have low protein levels and then once they let them eat whatever they want they they ate more to make up for the lost protein and then they tried to do this different insects and to me the most interesting one was web spinning spiders okay because they're not going out searching they're getting whatever gets stuck in their web right it said they even had this effect if they were only given access to flies that were produced in such a way they were low in protein uh they would actually when they go in and they suck the nutrients out of the insect, they, they excrete certain enzymes and they can excrete enzymes that allow them to ex then extract more protein to make up if they had a deficit. So just mm -hmm. amazing. And they found this with a whole variety of species, dogs and cats and, and all the way up to human beings. So the idea is, you know, you know, fat and carbohydrate are primarily sources of energy, though there is fatty content in every cell. It, there is a structural component that's somewhat that fat's used for. Protein is basically a structural component uh, for, for building tissue. So it's most famous, of course, for muscle because there's a high protein content, dry content uh, of protein in muscles, but also other tissues of the body like bones are uh, up to 50% protein. So some people in the past have kind of thought, well, 
high protein, that's just for those bodybuilders that want giant muscles. And it does help uh, develop your bigger muscles, but it's more important uh, for things too. Even, even things like staving off osteoporosis. It's not just a matter uh, yeah. of calcium. You know, the protein is also very important there. And another area of study that I find now that I'm in my 60s more interesting than ever, there's a lot of research on avoiding sarcopenia or loss of muscle tissue in the elderly as yeah. we get older. And they're finding that older people tend to have what they call anabolic resistance. It, it takes more higher levels of protein to trigger your body to into those growth processes as we get older. So there can be benefits for, for elderly people to increase their protein intake. And this has been through studies with things like, like whey protein supplements, but also just natural proteins in food. So, so protein is very essential for a variety of reasons, you know, primarily in building tissue, but also if you had a low carbohydrate diet, and even if your fat had become too low, the, the liver is also able to convert protein into glucose. Because it used to be thought you have to take a certain level of carbohydrate each day, like 120 or 30 grams, because your brain uh, uses primarily glucose. But we know now, I mean, protein can be converted into that glucose. So like I said, you know, I've been under that threshold, you know, so theoretical threshold by maybe 50, 60 grams. We're going on two years now and it had no no problems you know feeding my brain because the body is able to convert protein and fatty acids and stuff into into the nutrients we need so yeah so protein you know is a special importance we have to have it we also have to have fat uh, we're absolutely dependent on it and fat soluble vitamins carbohydrates are more optional they're strictly speaking not essential to life we know different uh, different groups the inuit uh, Eskimos who were before they were exposed to Western civilization had almost entirely meat diets. Certain Indian groups, the bison people, had, had almost only meat. The male warriors, anyway. Maasai people in Africa lived on on meat, milk, and blood. You know, so so uh, a high carbohydrate intake is not uh, essential, but we do have to have protein and fat in the diet. Yeah, I want to kind of summarize for the audience. These principles, like the first principle, eat natural foods, eat the, the foods that God created too, like cut out especially processed carbohydrates. And then in other ways, try limiting the carbohydrates. Then third, try to reach this protein threshold, eat, eat up to that threshold, try to eat enough protein that your body needs because your body might continue to be hungry until you get that much protein. What do you have like a daily protein target you try to reach then? Like what's the kind of rule you live by with your protein. Yeah, and again, and part of what I try to do, you know, I mean, some people who have some particular issues, health issues or weight loss issues, may need to track, mm -hmm. may find it beneficial to track more carefully. But I try to live in a way that it operates on a more of a natural basis, so I'm not counting too carefully. Mm -hmm. But I do have a general, yeah. a general rule of thumb. Uh, right now I weigh 190 pounds, and I probably take in about 120 to 170 or so grams of protein a day. Mm. Uh, but, but what I mainly do in this summer, I've gravitated towards, which some people will find when they reduce their carbon, I gravitated towards just eating twice a day most days. I eat yeah. uh, a breakfast. I never cared much for lunch, so I just let that go by. And then by 3 p.m., I kind of have some appetizers that lead into my supper. But just so breakfast, basically, and supper with some appetizers before. But in the in the morning then, I usually try to hit at least 40 grams of protein myself. Some studies have shown this really tends to trigger the, the protein synthesis. So my own particular, here, here's a typical day for me right now. Breakfast would be three eggs. Uh, you know, I ideally try to get the local locally farmed eggs, you know, the chickens are able to mm -hmm. run around and everything. But three eggs, and then I'll have a small piece of meat or cheese, just to get a little bit, five or six extra grams of protein there. Then I have a little protein smoothie. I might use Fairlife milk, the, the reduced uh, sugar milk, and often some whey protein powder. I might put in a scoop of peanut butter, depending on what flavor I'm using. But it's basically three eggs, a little bit of cheese or meat, and a protein drink. That's breakfast. And then I go, and that's usually after I've worked out. I work out in a fasted state normally. And then by 3 p.m. or so, I start having a few snacks, which might be like some nuts or pork rinds or cheese or olives. And then supper. And supper might just be like, you know, an eight ounce steak of some kind, and maybe one serving of vegetables, or I might just have a serving of cottage cheese on the side. And then I have a small dessert that's like a five ounce combination of milk or cream and, and protein powder that gives a little bit of sweetness there at the end of the day. 
And that's about it. So again, I, I miss. I probably typically hit about 150 grams of protein a day, but I don't, nice. you know, precisely measure it. Yeah. So you mentioned there that idea of fasting or timed eating. I know when I was losing weight, I remember once I hit a plateau, and I started paying attention to my eating window or, or how much of the time I was eating during the day, and I was shocked by one. I, I started waking up and not being hungry when I woke up. And, and, and I learned that that was probably a sign of a healthy metabolism that, that I woke up and my body was probably making ketones and that was satisfying. So I didn't wake up ravenously hungry. Like I used to like wake up and just need to like pound a grand slam at Denny's or something yeah. like that. Um, and, and then some days I would spontaneously not eat until lunch. And, and at the end, I was able to at times go three to five days with different fasting styles. So sometimes it was like a fasting mimicking approach. Sometimes it was um, uh, more of a full fast or just a water fast. Um, but uh, just the the radical change in my appetite that happened as a result of changing my dietary style, then how I could piggyback that on to being able to fast in ways that I never thought I would have uh, really amazed me. Um, it's like, uh, have you ever tried any of those kind of longer fasts or... Um, uh, I know you, you talk about fasting in the book too. So do you yeah, share some well, about fasting? Yeah, my own experiences. I just remember when I was in a teen, you know, there were a lot of different fads. There was a, there was a juice mm. fast fad for a time. So I remember for a time <laughs> I drank nothing but juice for, for one day for a period of weeks till I got tired of that. <clears throat> but, I, but I haven't because when, when I recently, last year, after I turned 60, almost mm. right afterwards, you know, I'd gotten really strong, but I was too heavy. My blood pressure was high. I decided oh, I'm going to change all this. So when I changed this diet in February 2021... Um, one thing I did in terms of fasting, the old bodybuilding idea was you need to eat about every three hours, five or six meals a day. If you want to be really constantly feed your muscles, you know, well, I went away from that. So I was just eating basically three meals a day, but then probably an afternoon snack. And I lost all my weight. My waistline really shrunk. I kind of hit my, my cruising level of 190 doing that before I started researching intermittent fasting and time restricted okay. eating. And then I was intrigued by the concept. So at that point, at that point, I started uh, just, I stopped my eating at 5.30 p.m. And I'm a super early riser. I'm like up at four in the morning. But I wouldn't eat anything after 5.30 p.m. usually, you know, maybe six, depending on what's going on. Uh, but then I'd get up in the morning and go to the gym. So I usually wasn't eating till at least uh, 7.30 in the morning the next day. So that gave me, what, a 14, uh, yeah, 14-hour fast. And I kind of like that. Yeah. It just felt good. I didn't lose any more weight, but I thought, oh, I feel good doing this. I like this. And then... Um, I got back into some more heavy lifting. I started taking the supplement creatine uh, last year, and I realized that my body weight had creeped back up to 199, 200. So I gained about 10. So I thought, okay, that, that's enough of that. No more creatine. I'm going to bring myself uh, back down again. But at this summer, while I was doing that, is when I naturally fell upon this. Yeah, most days I'm just going to skip lunch. So, mm -hmm. so almost all summer, like yesterday I had a lunch because we went and visited my son and we went out to lunch, you know. So I just trimmed down my breakfast and then went and had a lunch. But it's almost a natural progression. So for me, it's the, usually I don't eat between 5.30 and at least 7.30. And then I usually don't eat between my breakfast and my appetizers before supper. But I personally have not done uh, the extended fast. But mm -hmm. I will say I, I can see the value of it. And in the past, the idea would have been, oh, your muscles can instantly shrink away. But it's like Jason Fung, MD, and some others who write about the fasting show, well, the body's a little smarter than that, you know, and you're going to be able to pull from, from your uh, fat stores before your start, body starts instantly consuming your muscles if you, if you fast a little longer. Yeah. What was interesting in my experience was as I lost weight too, the fasting actually got harder. So as I got closer to my target weight, I... I started to notice that um, on days when I would, would be fasted and going into work, I would have less stress tolerance. Mm. Like, I think the, the, stress, the, the, the fasting puts the body in like more of a sympathetic state, more of an aroused state, kind of ready to go out and get the next meal um, mm -hmm. kind of a mode. And what I found then was um, I, would, I would just be less resilient to stress, more likely to feel overwhelmed. And then also the, the, my appetite started coming back. And, and I learned then that, that really... Um, the body can only release so much fat from each cell kind of in a day, more or less. So that made sense to me that as I got lighter, my body had less fat to use. Mm -hmm. So then 
instead of being in, in a fasted state where my body was using stored energy f- for energy, I was now in more of a starvation state where my body didn't have enough energy to use. And so that really kind of changed my relationship with fasting. And I've, I've done it less in the last couple of years um, because I, I've found it less effective and kind of noticing its effect on my stress level. Um, but, um, and I've, I've even seen some research recently that, that, um, seems to indicate that, uh, that chronic fasting over a long period of time leads, does lead eventually to less muscle mass. Um, that, that kind of chronic long-term or extended fasting, doing it over and over again will lead to less muscle long-term. So that's also kind of like moderated my use of the tool a little bit. Although I think, um, I think it, it can be really helpful for folks. Um, especially like for me, it was when I hit plateaus and it just seemed like I wouldn't lose any more weight. Integrating a little bit more fasting would kind of get the ball rolling downhill again on the scale. Yeah, that is very fascinating. And that's another thing too, that you will see as you go through this journey and transforming yourself, you have to be aware of how, how things change over time, what seems to helpful, mm. what may be helpful for a certain amount of time, then you're going to have to tone that back. It reminds me, you know, when some people go towards a very low carbohydrate eating, they will like purposely take in high quantities of fats, you know, these snacks yeah. called fat bombs that are, you know, highly concentrated coconut oil and peanut butter and butter and things. And at first I thought, oh, that's kind of fascinating. So I did a little bit of that. that. Um, or people do the bulletproof coffees with the butter and the coconut oil, the MCT oil. And I've done so- mm-hmm. some of that. But recently I've realized, you know, I don't really need to purposely jack up my fat. I mean, I drink whole fat dairy, I have whole fat cheese, I eat eggs, I eat steaks and burgers and things. But but now I won't purposely, you know, uh, uh, eat extra cream or something. Well, I may occasionally, if I want to keep my carbohydrates low, if I, instead of using eight ounces of that Fairlife milk, which has six grams of carbs, I might think, I've had enough carbs today, I'm going to put in six ounces of water and maybe just a couple ounces of cream or something. So I'll judici- judici- judiciously use a little bit uh, of fat, but never I'm purposely... Uh, fat overloading. But as far as the fasting too, yeah, I mean, I've always just enjoyed my food too. And I've never been, I've been, I've been too heavy, no doubt about it, but, but, you know, not extremely heavy. So I've never been called to try that. But, but to me on a common sense level, I say, yeah, you can go, you could probably go in a reasonable short periods of time now and then, and your body's, your muscle's not going to fade away. But yeah, if those fasts were too long or too chronic, I can certainly see how that doesn't seem ideal because again, you, you know, you're not feeding your body that protein that can stimulate the protein synthesis. And I would imagine then, just speculating, that that could even be more mm-hmm. dangerous for elderly people because they have a harder yeah. time processing the protein when they do get it. Yep. Yeah. It, as you're talking, I, I want to give the, the audience the standard disclaimer, you know, to talk to your doctor before you make big changes and listen to your own body and, and take everything in context. But as, as I do that too, I want to, I want to shift then to then moving into the exercise piece. Because you also go deep in exercise in this book too. Um, so one of the things you, you talk about is you, you talk about sort of different styles of or approaches to, to resistance training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think we need to get into the weeds with all those different styles, but what, what really struck me was how you highlighted really the importance of resistance training for long-term health. Like you'd already mentioned um, sarcopenia, osteoporosis, things of that nature, bone density, loss of muscle as people age. Um, what has, I guess, weightlifting meant to you as, as you've, you know, moved into the later decades of your life and, um, and how do you see that? Um, I think a lot of people kind of have the perspective that like weightlifting is a young person's sport. (laughs) Um, and, and as you get older, it's like you play pickleball and, and go for walks in the evening. Uh, but you know, you're still weightlifting and, and I know people who have got big strength games in their seventies, um, so would you talk a little bit about weightlifting and especially uh, the importance of weightlifting as you age? Yeah, actually, you know, yeah. And in some sense, it becomes more important as we age. Even in the 90s, these researchers yeah. came out with a book called Biomarkers based on some big Tufts longitudinal study. And they had 10 different things that predict how healthy you're going to be as you as you grow older, and how functional you're going to be. Things like, you know, your, your blood pressure, your blood lipids, your VO2 max, you know, your aerobic capacity, your body fat composition, things like that. And they found number one and two markers were muscle mass and muscle size. Though when that's maintained, when people get older, they tend to function their best. And, and even studies yeah. have constantly showed that grip strength is a good predictor of longevity and functionality later yeah. in life. 
is not just that the particular forearm muscles, you know, are particularly important, but that tends to correlate with the rest of your muscle strength. So yeah, so lifting, you know, it is important all through the lifespan. If you can, if you can do it in some form, it doesn't have to be heavy powerlifting with barbells. It can be machines, it can be cables, it can be dumbbells for some people. It can be their body weight type exercises. But some form of resistance training, if, if you're capable of doing it, if your doctor okays it, is important for men and for women all throughout life. And in some senses, especially later in life, to keep your functionality there. You know, if our muscles are strong, for example, you know, some older people have problems because they fall. And, and part of the reason they fall can be they get off balance and they don't have the muscular strength to correct themselves before they go down. And then they go down on perhaps bones that aren't as strong as they should be because they haven't had the adequate protein, they haven't had the weightlifting that it also stimulates bone growth. So I would just say some form of strength training, and there's many forms out there. If you're able to do it, it's very, very important through all of your life. Now people like me who kind of live and breathe weightlifting, you have to be careful. Like I point out in the book, when I turned age 60, I wanted to kind of have a last strength hurrah. So I was going to deadlift. So I deadlifted 410 pounds for five reps on the day I turned 60. Mm. I like, oh, that's good. I'm very pleased. I didn't know I'd be able to stay that strong at that age. And yet that same day, uh, I weighed 30 pounds more than I do today. My waistline was over five inches more than it is today. My blood pressure was 159 over 91, and now it's in the 120s over the low 70s. So, so we don't want to go overboard just making strength itself our goal. It has to be an integrated approach to fitness. So even if you may not be quite as ultimately strong as you would be if you let your body weight go up, if you took all these crazy amounts of creatine and supplements, you're probably better off being a little bit weaker but having a more balanced fitness, having cardiovascular capacity. So it's all a matter of balance. But I, but I will say though that throughout life, the proper form of resistance training is important for a whole lot of reasons. And even one is the fact that it impacts your, your circulating you know, blood glucose. It can help people with tendencies toward diabetes. It can be one little factor that can help control that. Yeah, yeah. As you're talking to him, I'm I learn a lot from Dr. Peter Atia. Who has a podcast called The Drive-In? Um, he he talks in there just just what you said basically. If if you don't have a heart attack, cancer, or dementia, the next thing that's going to kill you is a fall, statistically. <laughs> you know, so just that being able to have balance, being able to have strength, resilience. Uh, one of the concepts he talks about uh, is what he calls the centenarian Olympics. So his whole his whole spiel is longevity, um, and he's he's kind of a you might call him a boutique doctor who helps people of means to try to live a long life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so one of the, the modes that he uses, he's thinking in the centenarian Olympics means, what do I want to do when I'm a hundred years old? You know, things like being able to put your, your suitcase up in a, um, in a, in a, an airplane, being able to get down on the ground and play with your great grandchildren, things like that. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he starts with that goal in mind. Then he works his way back, like understanding how, um, how, the ability to grow muscle diminishes over time, how you have natural atrophy, how the body diminishes. So that's how he sort of like designs his workout plan. But it just struck me like in light of our faith, the centenarian Olympics doesn't put the goal out far enough, <laughs> right? Like as Catholics, we really need to have like the eternal life Olympics. And that doesn't mean we need to be like bulkier, but I think it's like the, like how the virtue of faith modifies the ends of all the virtues and changes the direction of the of the cardinal virtues um so it just it's made me ponder like what do the eternal life olympics look like and how that that vision toward we're living for eternity adjusts our exercise and i, and I feel like that vision really helps with that balance um of, of integrating um health into our faith more Oh, oh, I love it. You know, and I think, you know, I love some of the theologian speculations on the, uh, like our glorified bodies that we will have mm. someday in heaven, how they'll be more agile, they'll be super fast, you know, they'll be beautiful, they'll have all these amazing capacities. So, so in a way, our time on earth can be kind of training, training towards that, you know, we're never going to completely achieve yeah. that there. But thinking then too, how, the way that the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity transform all the natural virtues and give them the higher ends, you know, the ends of, of God and God's God's will, you know, and St. Thomas says that, you know, Christ talks about different mansions in heaven. We're going to have, we're all going to have beatitude, the most that we can, that's fitting for us, you know, based on the vision of God. But he says those who will have the greatest beatitude 
are not going to be the people who are necessarily the smartest, you know. It's going to be those who have grown most in their love for God. So I say one of the goals mm-hmm. of taking care of your body is to try to become like what I call a dynamo of charity. You're building up this energy mm-hmm. so you can do that, so you can play with those grandkids, so you can help that neighbor that needs some phys- help with the physical task. So you're developing a body not just so you can say, hey, look at what I can do at this age, you know. You're saying, hey, I have the energy. I can go out and do good things. I can, I can help people. I can give my, my grandkids or my great-grandkids joy. So I think, yeah, our Catholic approach does transcend it. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to live as long as I possibly can in this one life here on earth. We're saying, no, I want to live as well as I can following God's will in this life on earth, but, but never to forget there's an eternal life that comes after. So I want the way I take care of my body to be preparing me for that. You know, and showing gratitude for God while we're here on earth for these physical bodies uh, he gave us as we have them now. Yeah, dynamo of charity. I, that like resonates with my experience because when I was 400 pounds, like when I got off work, all I could do was eat dinner and watch TV. Like that was, uh, and in some sense, like when you're that big, like going up the stairs is resistance exercise. Um, so, but as, as I lost weight, like I, I was able to come home and, and like engage, you know, to mm-hmm. not just eat dinner, but cook dinner to be able to help my wife keep up with chores around the house more. Um, now we, we have we have our first child now and being able to come home and play with him on the floor when I get off work. Like in so many mm-hmm. ways, like I could never love my family as well if I were still as heavy as I was. Uh, so what you say there, like just really hits me and resonates with me so much. Yeah, and I can, I can only imagine for credit to you, I, my highest weight ever was 234. And, you know, I was a big, had, squatting huge weights and things. And I remember what stairs felt like to me at that weight. So I can imagine at 400 and what a, a transformation uh, that is that is made for you. And I should say, too, it just something occurred to me on, on the practical level as we talk about the, the strength training as we age. We, we always want to exercise caution uh, because yeah. we want to maximize our, our muscles without damaging our joints. So we're also always yeah. going to be looking to do our exercises in the proper form and selecting the exercises that, that fit our body habitus and or that work around particular yeah. injuries or limitations we might have because we always want that strength training to build us up rather than to, to tear us down further. Yeah, and, and one of the confusing things about health and fitness, I think, is that the body always responds to better and we, we shouldn't mistake in better for the best. So um, like if, if you've never done strength training, I think you can get pretty good gains right away just by basically doing anything. Um, and then and then as you kind of develop that base of muscle, you know, then if you want to go beyond that, it takes some more. But as far as developing um, like a, a functional base of muscle mass that's going to encourage bone growth, like you don't have to go into the gym and become like an Olympic lifter. Right. Uh, I know some people like, they think of like how I worked out when I was playing sports in high school or college and they'll go back to the gym and they'll like try to do a workout that they did back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then you end up like on your back for three weeks. Um, oh, oh, so I think exactly. if people can, can enter in with mod- that moderation, knowing that, that even, um, even what might seem easy to you can have some pretty drastic positive results on your health, especially at first. Oh, a- absolutely. Just, just one case. We have a little garage out in our gym. We built in the last, or uh, our gym out in the garage we've built in the last couple of years. I have a son in his mid-30s, lives down the street. Mm-hmm. He has some buddies that come and work out there sometimes. And one of them, he's about 35. He never really lifted in his life. And he can just find the time. He's got a family. He comes one night a week, and they do uh, overhead presses, squats, deadlifts, and pull-downs. Four, he does four exercises once a week. And in a period of four or five months, he's had tremendous gains. I mean, I remember he had to work, wait a long time to deadlift 135, which is one plate on one 45-pound plate on each side of an Olympic bar. And Eric mm-hmm. told me last time he was here, he, he's doing 225. He's got two of the big plates on each side, just by small, gradual increases over time. And now he's in his mid-30s. So a person a lot older, they may not be doing squats or deadlifts at all. They might find themselves in machines, you know. So if, if grandma is on a leg press machine and she's using 30 pounds, and six months later, she's using 80 or 90 pounds. She might find it's a lot yeah. easier now to walk, to get up and down those stairs. So, yeah, the, those small increases on safe exercises have, have a lot to promise uh, everybody. Yeah, and that ability, that strength could be the difference between living till you're 85 or living till you're 90. Like, honestly, so that's, it's, it, it's, um, I think it's, it's hard to get started 
But as we get started, I think it helps to, to like moderate the vision, um, to not think like, okay, like going back to the gym means I'm becoming an Olympic athlete, <laughs> you know, but, but starting out with like bite-sized pieces to get in there and just, just get doing something, even just uh, bodyweight exercises at home can make such a big difference. I, I spent over a year of this process, I canceled my gym membership and I just did um, bodyweight exercises at home. And I saw tremendous gains that year in strength. Um, I went from being able to do like eight pull-ups to being able to do 16. So like mm -hmm. doubled the reps on that. Um, so, so you don't even need a gym membership to get strong. Um, so as we're, uh, we're winding down, I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between health and holiness. Um, this is a question I've asked some guests in the past. Like, like is our health and holiness the same thing? I don't, I don't think they are because oftentimes people get sick for reasons outside of their control, right? So, so sometimes we, we sort of live a healthy life, but the Lord takes our health from us, almost like an oblation. Um, but on the other hand, it, it, it seems like the opposite isn't true, that, that we can just let our health deteriorate and that doesn't have any consequence to our moral life. So what is that, that like relationship, that nuance between health and holiness? That is a good point, you know, because uh, they're, they're related, but they're not the same thing. And they can present themselves very, very differently in, in different people. You know, like one wonderful saint, uh, St. Margaret of Castello, D Dominican, you know, was born with all these deformities, dwarfism and blindness and a variety of other issues, uh, leg length discrepancy and all this. And her parents even like tried to hide her away for years and then, and then abandon her in a city. And she goes on to become a saint because the way she took care of people, other people in need, even though she had all these physical disabilities. So, so God can use bodies that may objectively be considered deformed or unhealthy and still do wonderful things with them. You know, you could have a person who's, who's bed, bed bound, but if there's visitors or even if there's just the staff in an institution comes in through the way they communicate with them and, and share with them, they, they can be doing positive things. They can glorify God through their bodies, even if their bodies are, are almost uh, immobile. So yeah, so the so there can be disconnects there, and just because you're not healthy, just because you have a disease, doesn't mean God's punishing you. Doesn't mean that you're not holy. You know, we each just have our own part in in divine providence. So we need to play that out. Also, of course, we can have a person who has absolutely robust health and fitness, but if all they're concerned about is things of the body, you know, then they may be very far, far, far from holiness, which is kind of where we are. Yeah. Many, not everybody, of course, but many people are who involved in our professional sports today and our more obsessive focus on bodybuilding and certain things. That's highly possible uh, to be either healthy and or fit and yet to not even be concerned with the spiritual aspect, you know. So the best thing is to, is to find that, that balance. And I think, well, well I, I'm also drawing back to quotes from uh, Pope Pius XII. He would often talk to a group of athletes. And I remember one quote, he says, the, the church is all in favor of physical culture, proper care of the body, as long as it's done, you know, in proper proportion. And then he kind of bullet points some things that it does that our body doesn't draw us away from things of the spirit, that it gives a, that it hmm. gives us more energy rather than less, kind of like so we're not overtraining, you know, and a variety of things there. So it doesn't take us away from the commitments of our family. So I think if, if we're if we're doing it prudently, you know, calling in that virtue of prudence or practical wisdom, for most of us, we are gonna strive to make that health and holiness uh, mesh. And so, and so they're never conflicting goals. We're never doing things to improve our health or fitness or the way we look that would be unvirtuous or detract from our holiness. And, and we're not just seeking holiness to the sole point that we ignore the fact that God gave us these bodies to maintain and, and to serve as temples of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, as I've been processing this, I've one, and I want to run this by you. I, I've been thinking of it like, I think health is, is the perfection or the, the improvement of us as a natural, on a natural level. Holiness is the improvement or growth on a supernatural level. Um, and, and I think typically they correlate, but some people are, have a supernatural vocation, you know, like for example, celibacy being mm -hmm. a, a supernatural vocation. So I think similarly, um, some people have a calling um, into that space, and, and especially, I think, joined to the suffering of Christ, um, that they're, in spite of their holiness, in spite of their, their will, in spite of um, trying to flourish, that they, they struggle with infirmity 
and disease and, and, uh, and, and struggles in the body. Um, so do you think I'm on the right track with the idea of kind of the distinction between the natural and the supernatural? I, I love that distinction. Yes, yes, I, I really do see that. And sometimes, you know, in God's providence, the natural physical afflictions can be a springboard to, to deeper levels of holiness. You know, what we mm-hmm. learn, it can make us more compassionate when we suffered ourselves. So I, I, I love the distinction of the natural and the supernatural. Ideally, they're going to mesh together, but in certain people, that, that it's going to play out very differently. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, well, Dr. Vos, thank you so much for this. I want to um, encourage the whole audience to go to Sophia Institute Press. The link will be in the description and to pre-order the book. Um, this book, I think it, it really does a great job synthesizing um, a lot of, of knowledge and wisdom around health, a lot, of, a lot of the science in a way that's balanced. But also, I think even if you're familiar with a lot of health literature, you're still going to learn stuff from this book. It goes deep enough. And, and it really integrates it with our Catholic faith. There's a whole section in there on, on virtue uh, and how it relates to that. And, and, and it does, a, I think, a beautiful job with that kind of balance that we've been talking about. So I'd encourage you to go to Sophia Institute Press, pre-order the book, um, let, let Sophia know they got to print a ton of these before it's released in November. Uh, and with that, thank you so much, Dr. Vost. And if you want to support all the work we do here at Physically Spiritual, head over to physicallyspiritual.com to become a patron of the show. God bless everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.